I want to talk about something different tonight. Tonight, how many enjoy stories? Anybody? We all do. We may not recognize them as stories like, like something you've been read to or read to your kids, but we all enjoy stories of one type or another, whether those drama shows at night on TV and get you all worked up and have trouble sleeping or comedies or whatever. There's stories in everything. And we've talked before in the past, you know, maybe even last year about the fact that we all have our own story. Stories are powerful. Stories have been around part of humankind and human nature for all of human history. In fact, for most of human history, we haven't really had written stories. If you think about it, most of those stories were told by people passed from generation to generation in group settings, around fires. I mean, there used to be professional storytellers a lot more often, and they were trained, and they, there was an art to telling a story. And we're all familiar with stories, good stories. Good stories kind of catch you by surprise, right? And good stories tell, us, tell a lesson, teach a lesson, and I don't know if you've done this with your kids, but you've, you might have read them a fairy tale and asked, what do you think you're trying to learn or what are they trying to teach us in this? And it's amazing to me when I volunteer at my kids' school how, how much they're teaching them about story construction and how to tell a good story and what's in a story and what you should look for as you're reading a story. I don't remember learning any of that in school and here they're, you know, like Lily's in third grade learning this. And as we think about this, though, think about what goes into a story. I mean, what... What is there? You've got to have something interesting to catch, catch the person's attention. I mean, it can be a lot of things, you know, a dark and dreary night, whatever it is. But there's something to draw you in, right? And then there's going to be a crisis and resolution. And I mean, there's all these elements that go into a story. I want to remind you that there is a storyteller that we all know and love. I tried to find a picture of Jesus that wasn't too offensive to me. I just, I'm just not into hippies. I never was. You know, now that I shave my head, it just makes it worse, I guess. But um, anyway, Jesus was a master storyteller. And we know, that from a lot, we, we know that for a lot of reasons. We know he told stories to teach, and most of us have read, you know, stories that he told in the Bible to teach and intrigue people. Some of his stories were confusing and enigmatic and left people questioning and wanting more, so much so that his disciples sometimes would come to him later and say, uh, all right, what did that mean? And Jesus would look at him and say, I mean, he literally would say this. You read it in scripture and say, are you so dull? You didn't get what I was saying? And yet he would tell stories that were multi-layered and more multifaceted, stories for the crowds and stories for the, the people looking on and the religious rulers. And he would tell stories that would aggravate some people and make other people cheer. And he would tell stories that would draw them in and with surprise endings. And we're going to look at one of those stories tonight that he told. But as you think about it, it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus was a master storyteller because he wrote our story. He wrote the story of humanity. Think about our story. It's so similar. I don't care if it's an action movie or a drama, whatever it is. They all have this element to it. And think about our story as, for humans. Paradise, right? It starts off perfect. Just like every movie you see. You know, it's all idyllic and maybe it's <laughs> in a park and there's birds singing. And then what happens? Evil creeps in. Somehow evil comes in and destroys everything. And you see that in the garden. In the garden, comes in and ruins everything, paradise lost. And there's a huge crisis, and it's, it's so dramatic. You cannot even measure the dramaticness of this conflict. I mean, this is a cosmic scale conflict. 
The enemy of your soul is trying to take over heaven itself, and we are caught in the middle as pawns. And the crisis in this case is so dire, we can never save ourselves. Humankind has no chance. We're outmatched. There's no way that we can match the fearsomeness and the, the horrible nature of this evil that is after us, that's out to destroy you, everything about you, to destroy goodness, the whole goodness of the universe. He's trying to take it all down. And so what do we need? We need a savior. We need a hero, right? We need a hero that's bigger than life. We need a hero that's better than us, better in every way. We need a hero that's perfect. Who are you thinking of right now? What movie are you thinking of? Hopefully not. Hopefully you're thinking about Jesus and the fact that he's the Superman. He's the one that can come in and, and rid the world of evil, rid the cosmos, the, the entire universe of evil. He can fight it back and he overcomes all of that and in doing so sacrifices his very self for us. And we needed him to do it because we couldn't do it. It's the story behind every story. Jesus wrote that story. He's the, he's the hero in the story. And then what we do as humans is we come to him and he redeems us. He pays the price for us so that we can have salvation and return to paradise. He's the one. That's the story behind all stories. And as Jesus tells that story through the whole Bible, there's moments where he was on earth and he needed to help correct people because what happens is we had lost the whole story. We forget the whole thing. And I'm going to take you to a story tonight, um, quite a few stories, but we're not going to look at all of them. In one of Jesus's teaching times to people, if you can imagine, he's teaching a lot of people at one time, and he had just had this altercation with the religious rulers of the day, Pharisees in this case. And Pharisee has become known as a catchphrase for someone who's a hypocrite, a religious hypocrite especially. And it's a little disheartening for me as a preacher because they would have been the preachers of the day, but they were phonies and show-offs and egocentric and self-absorbed and all into class. And they were better than everybody else and on and on and on. And they didn't like what Jesus was doing because he shared, he shared truth and he preached and he treated everybody the same. And he was, with the, he was with the common man and he was with sinners and he was with all these people that the religious rulers would never have approved of. And it was in that context that Jesus is telling a story, but he's not telling these stories just to the masses. He's telling these stories to also hopefully prick the conscience and needle just a little bit these religious Pharisees. So he tells the story, you know, the story of the lost sheep. We all heard that, right? The shepherd has a hundred sheep, plenty of sheep, a hundred sheep, and he's missing one. And that one sheep is worth finding, so much so that he leaves the 99 to find the one. So as you're listening to the story, imagine if you're the crowd, who's the 99 in the story that he's teaching? Church people, right? Us. Maybe even some of those preachers. And the one is who? The one is the lost sheep, the one who went away. And he, what he's saying is that we serve a God who cares about one lost one. So then he tells another story about the lost coin. And this lady has 10 coins, 10 special coins. And, and all of the details of the story are important, but the most important part is she loses one. And it's worth it to clean her entire house for one coin. 
Have you ever done that? Cleaned everything just for one coin. One coin for one thing you're looking for, and you end up cleaning everything to find the one thing. And if you've done that, you know how important it is to find the one thing. And at the end of this story, Jesus throws in a very familiar verse. You've heard it said so many times. You've heard this said when the one coin was found, when the one sheep was found, when the one person responds to the message of the gospel and comes to Christ, you've heard this verse. I, in the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What was Jesus saying to that crowd? You're important because you're already in. You're one of the nine. It's, but the singing and rejoicing is happening. Now, have you ever read this and thought, do they ever sing and rejoice over me? Because I'm already in. Or maybe they did when you got saved and you wonder, is the rejoicing over for me? Do you ever think that? No, you don't. You're, you're way better than me. I know that. Okay, well, the heaven rejoices over the one sheep, right? And the one coin found. Then Jesus takes it all to a whole nother level. Because if you can imagine the scene again, I'm sure the vast majority of the crowd, what were they doing? They were relating, because a good story, you can find a person in the story to relate to, or, or one, at least somebody you want to relate to. You know, a lot of people want to be the hero, right? You know people like that. I mean, I'm like that. I mean, I'll be honest with you about it. Every dream I have, I'm the hero, right? Don't you wake up for a dream and say, that's right, right? Who does that? Come on. Some of us do that. Who does that? Oh, please. All right, that's cool. I'll save y'all. That's all right. All right, in my dreams anyway, I'll, I'll play that role. Now, I have other people that I know close to me in my life. When they have dreams, they're always the victim. And I look at them like, I would not go to sleep if that's my dream. I wouldn't even want that dream. Why do you dream like that? And then I'm trying to talk to him like, I can't help it. I'm just dreaming. And I'm thinking, I don't know what that means necessarily. I'm not going to even try to psychoanalyze it because I'm sure I'd be wrong. But as these people are listening to these stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, what are the vast majority of them thinking? Who are they relating to? They're relating to the lost one. And they're thinking, that's me. You know what else they're thinking? Wait a minute. He's changed the story from how I've normally heard it. Because all of a sudden, maybe sinking into their minds, they're thinking, wait a minute, is he implying that there's a God who loves me, personal to me? Because I thought, most people at the time thought, God only loved the rich people or the religious people or the super spiritual people. They, and, and that was reinforced by the rich people and the super spiritual people and the re- religious people. And when Jesus was preaching this, I guarantee you that the Pharisees on the fringe were thinking, huh, I see where he's going with this, jerk. I'm the bad guy again in his sermon. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus isn't done with them. Because this story, the lost son, he goes after him full throttle. Now, we're going to read through this whole thing. And, um, but I'm going to go quick. So I want you to stay up with me. To illustrate the point further... This is out of Luke 15. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine spread over the land and he began to starve. I'm going to stop there because... There are actually records of this story, a similar story to this, from the first and second century that ends there. 
And that would be a good story, wouldn't it? Right? I mean, well, not good in, in the Christian like sense, but it would be good like a fairy tale story, right? That'd be a good way to teach kids not to do what he did. All right? I mean, what's Hansel and Gretel about? You know, don't wander off. You're going to get eaten by a witch. Right? I mean, that's your teaching kids with these stories. Be careful. Don't, don't open the door to strangers, Red Riding Hood. Right? I mean, that's what these stories are about. And most of the people in the crowd, probably at this point in the story, were thinking, well, good, he got what he deserved. And guaranteed the Pharisees are thinking that. They still probably didn't put it together that, ooh, wait a minute, I might be part of this story. So Jesus continues the story. And this is where, he, this is where it started to get really touchy for him. Because he says, <clears throat> he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Right then, everybody in the crowd said, whoa, I thought that farmer was a Jew until now. Now I realize he's working for a Gentile farmer. And they're already starting to say, whoa, this story's not going where I expected it to go. Some of them are enjoying that, and some of them are very uncomfortable, especially who? The religious people, right? The young man became so hungry. Now, Jesus keeps, he just keeps laying it on. So hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Again, some of them were thinking, well, he deserved that. So he returned home to his father. I skipped a whole section here, and I apologize. What it should say there next is he started eating the food that was meant for the pigs, which would have made everybody in there recoil because that would have been unthinkable. Because not only would it have made them grossed out because they wouldn't even eat pig, let alone eat with pigs. I mean, that's even worse. But then the religious types were thinking, whoa, now that means he can't even go to church for like a week or 10 days until he's purified, ceremonially clean. Do you realize this? This is how their culture was. You are not fit to be in public or in common uh, social settings now with other Jews because of what this guy was doing to survive. That would have been to them unthinkable. Jesus just kept going and going and going. And then the next thing that I neglected to put in here, what he says next, let me just read it to you. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. You know what they probably thought right there? I bet the dad's not going to even talk to him. I bet the dad's already disowned him and won't even recognize him. I bet the dad might not even hire him as a servant. Instead, he might make him maybe a slave servant or something lower than that. Or maybe he might have him go work for a family member or just somebody else he doesn't know. There's no way a father's going to accept him. And then Jesus says something that I guarantee you everybody stopped and listened. Filled with love and compassion. Those were not terms that the Middle Eastern father would have shown to a kid. You know dads like that, right? Still today. I've heard this story, I can't tell you how many times. You know, they talk about, well, you know, that generation, they didn't show love like that. You know, my dad's never said that word to me. My dad never heard 
my father never heard his father tell him he loved him till my grandfather was dying. My dad had to leave. Uh, he was, it was during the Vietnam War and he had to fly home because my dad, my grandfather was on his deathbed. And that was my dad. I remember my dad coming back and saying something about that. And as a kid, I'm, I, I couldn't even understand what he meant till I was much older. I do remember him saying it when he came home that he, he said, I talked to my, I had an adult conversation with my father for the first time. And I remember as a kid, I mean, I, I was 10 thinking, what? And I'm so thankful my dad wasn't like that. But you know dads like that, right? Most dads in this culture at the time were that dad. But Jesus said, love and compassion, he ran to his son. Again, everybody's going to say, what? No way. No way someone in the Middle East 2,000 years ago would pick up their robes and run to the sun. You know why? Because that would act as if what the sun had done wasn't so bad. It would have been a disgrace. The sun should have been groveling and crawling to the dad, bowing on his feet at the dad, I mean, bowing at the father's feet. This, when the dad runs to him, it communicates the wrong message. Everybody in there was confused. <laughs> his, he embraced him, ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring on his finger, and his sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate a feast for this son of mine was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Party began. Remember that party that that Jesus referred to about the coin? That party began the lost son. And I guarantee you that the mass crowd, most of the people in the crowd were starting to change their idea of who God was. That's what Jesus was doing on the planet anyway. You guys have completely missed who God the Father was and the relationship that he intended to have with you. Let me redefine it for you. And so he's telling them these stories so that they can start to grasp that God intended to have a personal relationship with them and literally cared about them. People were starting to twist in their minds. Oh my goodness, is this possible? Is it possible that the God we're worshiping at the temple, the one that we sacrifice to, the one that the priests have to go and talk to actually cares about me? I don't have to go through a priest. I mean, Jesus is foreshadowing all these things to them. So it goes on. And here's where I'm sure it got really uncomfortable for those religious folks. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what is going on? The servant answered, your brother is back. He was told, and your father has killed a fattened calf. And we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Again, that wouldn't have happened in their culture. Promise you. The father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Three main characters in the story. The people in the crowd and us sitting here today 
relate to one of these people. That was the power of his stories. It's the power of any story. You relate to somebody in some way in the story. My question to you tonight is which one of these characters do you relate to? Are you the lost son? We've all been the lost son, right? That's how we start out in this. Are you, dare I ask, the elder brother? Is that too offensive? I mean, you might expect that of Pastor and I because we're pastors, right? And Pastor Nick, well, probably not Nick. He's nicer than us. Okay. Here's the problem with stories like this that we read in the Bible. Not, and I don't mean problem in the sense that there's anything wrong with them. The, the, the problem is us. It's difficult for us as 21st century Americans to read a story like this and fully comprehend all the details that are in this story. The reason is the same reason it's difficult for us to communicate with anybody we don't know, or it can be even men and women, for goodness sakes. But you, you've heard this, you know, when you marry someone, you marry their family, and it's important to get to know their family. I mean, we, we have all these filters we bring to life that involve basically all of our experiences and then our prejudices. That's normal human experience. I've had certain experiences, you have. And with those come prejudices. And what I mean by prejudice is the classic definition of the term in that we come and we prejudge people and events and things based on what we already know. And that already creates a limitation for us. We're 21st century Americans. I guarantee that none of you have, have ever experienced, you know, Middle Eastern life of two, two millennia ago. You just, we haven't. We don't. None of us have, maybe some of you have worn sandals. I don't know, all your life. We grow up like this. Think about it for a minute. Let me help explain this just a little bit further. We all grow up in life. We start, you know, the Hebrew, this term, the tabla rasa, you know, you start off with like a blank slate. And then what we do is we add information to our, to our mind's ability to, to categorize information. And then that's how we understand the world. Think about it like this. You take a little kid, right? And maybe you grow up and your child in your house, you have a dog. So the baby points at the dog and makes some crazy baby sound. And then what do you say? Doggy, doggy. So what does the baby do? Doggy. And then you go over to grandma's house and she has a cat. And what does the baby do? Doggy. Because she sees four feet and a tail. And you say, no, 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 honey, that's a kitty cat. And then on the way home, you pass a horse. And she says, kitty and you say, no. And she says, doggy. And you say, no. What are you doing? You're expanding the, the base of information for her, right? You say, no, it's a horsey. And then she does the same thing with the cow and on and on. That's how we do it. So we do the same thing. And I, I, I don't want to get into too much of this, but we always put our human and we put what we know into what we see. But ancient Middle Eastern culture was totally different than what we experience today. And you, you know how this is because I know you've had experiences where you've seen, <clears throat> maybe you've been in Walmart and you've seen the way a kid responds to their father and you think, oh my gosh, <laughs> if I would have done that, you know, I would have been walking out of there with a fat lip, right? I would never speak to my father like that or worse, my mother, because then I would have heard it from her and then him, right? And that's how we were raised, but you see it, how it changes, and it's even drastically different when you're talking going from one culture to another and then 2,000 years ago. So I can't really emphasize enough the nuances that Jesus is putting into these stories that were probably, even for this day, making people just recoil. Like, I cannot believe that this father would run to the son. It wouldn't have happened. 
And he wouldn't have accepted him so freely. It just wouldn't have happened in their culture. But Jesus was trying to teach them something spiritual about the relationship between them and God. And he was trying to tell them, yes, that's how you are as a human, but God and his relationship to us is different. I want to take it even a step further and something you don't think about very often, but even the way that the father reacted to the elder son, that would have never happened in their culture. A couple things to notice. It was a huge insult for the son not to go in. And when the father called for him, he would have had to go in and he didn't. And then when the father went to talk to him, the, the son didn't even address him like you have to address a father. They didn't. He just spoke to him. That wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened either for him to say to him, my dear son, I've always loved you. But isn't that how God treats us? He comes to us that way, but humans don't react that way. So all along as he's telling this story, people are thinking, whoa, that would never have happened. He's telling a story. He's trying to teach us something. Is that really how God sees us? Is it really that different between him and us? Even the things where, you know, he runs to him and he kisses him. Basically, that's saying all is forgiven. And then he says, I want to be your servant. He says, no way. That's never going to happen. Put a robe on him and a ring on him. That's saying you're back in all the way. Total restoration. That would have never happened. None of those things would have been a a dignified adult behavior in their culture. So let's think about it uh, from another perspective here. um, I'm going to skip through. Oh, let's talk about the inheritance really quickly because I think it's important. The inheritance culture. In, In Jewish culture, it's actually dictated in the book of Deuteronomy. The elder son would get a double portion depending on how many sons there were. So in this case, with two sons, the elder son would have gotten two thirds and the younger son would have got a third. So if he's asking for an inheritance early like this, it could have been, it doesn't necessarily mean this, but it could have been as much of an insult as saying, I wish you were dead, give me my money now. It may not have been that drastic, but it could have been understood that way. Some of the people in the crowd would have definitely been thinking, I cannot believe he just said that to his father. Would never have happened. So when he got that money, I never really thought about this till last week. Do you realize then that the rest of it was the older sons? It really was. It was his. Not yet. I mean, he was still working for his father because traditionally in their culture, what would have happened is they would have stayed working for the father till father died. Their whole family would have been there. They would have just been you know, connected on the same piece of property and run it at all. And maybe the other brothers might have split off or sold their parts to the brothers or whatever. But that older son, it would have been very appropriate for him to live there his entire life, quite possibly. But it was his. So when he came running back and said, what's going on? There's more to it than just saying, what's going on? It's like, what's going on with my stuff? What are you, you're partying with my calf. Do you see how this goes? Okay, we prefer the lost son, don't we? He's the one I want to be the one I've related to. And we all have related to him. Let's think about this. We've all been there where he was. We've all been in the place where we needed the savior and we had to come to terms with who we were. We've all stumbled and wandered. Even if you've been with Christ and wandered, you're again in the place of the lost son. And you're coming to Christ and you're hoping hoping beyond hope that he will restore you like the father restored the lost son, right? And yet there's some part of us that says, God, really? Can you really restore me fully this time after you did last time and the time before that and before that and a year ago, right? I mean, does God really do that? Thank God he does. 
Thank God he does. Thank God he does. Because if he didn't, where would we be? Because not one of us is perfect and stays perfect. It just doesn't work that way. The fact is, all of us are the younger son over and over. Hopefully not to the degree the younger son was in the story and not to the degree that you were at one time. But the fact is, we're all the younger son. And we all love the concept of grace that's illustrated here. And we all need that grace. We need it desperately because we can never attain grace on our own. We don't and we don't want to get what we deserve, right? None of us ever want that. We all want the personal God that runs after us and pursues us. I want that. I don't deserve it. I don't understand how he can do it over and over and over, but I want that from him. I want that younger son. I want the full restoration without hesitation. Did you catch that? Full restoration without hesitation. Did the father say, clean him up first? He did not. Did he say, put some good clothes on him first? Because you know that boy stunk. You know they didn't have baths and stuff, and if they did, it would have been expensive, and he didn't have money for that, and he'd been eating with pigs. Can you imagine what he even looked like? And his father did not hesitate. What'd he do? Man, it chokes me up thinking about it. His dad ran to him, it says, fell on his neck and kissed him. No hesitation. And that's the way God responds to us time after time. And not only do I want that, I crave that, and I need that. Unfortunately, though, um, I'm, I'm going to skip that. I'm not unfortunately, God never changes. His love toward the sons was consistent. Do you see that? Older and younger. He ran to the older. He called the, he, he came outside to seek the older. Ran to the younger, came outside to seek the older. He pursues us, whichever son we are. I'm so thankful for that. That's the God we serve. I love this picture as well in there, the fact that there's a picture of free will in there. Do you realize that God let the younger son go and squander his money? Why would God do that if he, didn't, if he could have stopped it? Of course he could have stopped it, but why would he do that? He did that because real love means that he allows you to make mistakes. If he, if he, if he kept you from really making choices, then, you, then your choice to love him would not be a real choice. It wouldn't be. It would be coercion and it would not be real love. But because he wants real love, he lets us do that. And what did he do as the father? The Bible says he was looking for the son. No matter where you walk in your life, no matter where you wander from him or stumble, he is always calling you back. Always. I've had so many people. It's weird. You know, there's certain questions as a pastor I get asked more than any other questions. And one of them is, what's the unforgivable sin? And I think I might have committed it. And, and I look at people who ask that and I think, all right, just tell them. The very fact you're asking that tells me you haven't. If you had committed that, you wouldn't care and you wouldn't be coming back. The fact is you can't sin so much that God doesn't want to redeem you. No matter what it is. Always hopes. Always. I love this concept because I guarantee you the crowd in that day did not feel this. God looks at people as a prize to be sought after. Whether that's the sheep or the coin or the son, they're worth finding. People matter to God. People matter to God. Every single person matters to him. Every single one. And I also guarantee you that as those Pharisees were standing around the crowd, 
Maybe, well, I don't know if I guarantee you, but I bet you some of them were thinking, they don't matter as much as me. But to God, we all matter the same. The son's heart changed quite a bit. If you think about it, he started with arrogance and defiance, demanded his money, wanted to go do what? Have fun. Sin is fun. I love the scriptures honest about this. Sin is fun for a season, but it ends in death. We all know that. It doesn't take you know, a rocket scientist to know that. Yes, it's fun. If it wasn't fun, no one would do it. It is fun, but it ends in death. And then he sinks to a point of humiliation. Maybe you can relate to this. In many layers in different parts of your life. And then there comes a realization where he realizes he is sunk, he is hopeless, and he's in need of repentance. And he comes to a point of true repentance. If you remember in the story, he said, I will go back and tell my father I am sorry to God and to you. I only hesitate there and pause there for a moment because I think for most of us, we want to go quickly past that part of repentance, whether that's with our husband or wife or child or whoever, because very few of us enjoy saying that you're sorry to somebody, right? (laughs) And for true forgiveness to happen, you have to admit, I've done something wrong. Pastor, I really appreciate it when you talked about getting a ticket and how you were upset about it and didn't deserve it and it wasn't right. And then you had this realization, I was speeding. I did it. I did it. And so often we want to just skip past that and get right to the forgiveness part. And in a sense, you, we, we embrace this cheap grace idea when you really do have to realize, I am sorry for what I did. And I want to submit to whatever authority that means, whether that's you know, your, your wife or husband or whatever, whatever the situation is. And then he comes back for reconciliation and then ultimately restoration. The last thing I want to say is this. I started with this, kind of, that was a little foreshadowing for you literary types. Um, Some of us were the younger son, but that was a long time ago, right? And now we've slipped into, and you've become the elder son. Ouch. Did you think that? Did you listen to that story and keep thinking, no, 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 I'm I'm the younger son. I'm the son, the lost one still. But you're not. Because you've been faithful, and you've been consistent, and respectful, but along with that, you felt a little taken for granted, right? I'm not talking about with Crown Point. I'm talking about with God. And hasn't there maybe been with some of you a point where you've kind of slipped into a little bit more about legalism than grace? And what I mean by this is there's certain things that you feel like should be happening in your life, and there's part of you that's a little frustrated and You've gotten comfortable with the rules and the trappings of holiness. And when you see other people coming to Christ who aren't quite up to that level, you see that rather than extending the grace. And you see people that are in sin and that offends you rather than you feeling compassion. Do you see what I'm saying? It's easy to slip into the role of the elder brother. I don't care what level you are in Christ or whoever you are, if you're a leader or just come to the church or a pastor or whatever. If you've become more about the rules than the grace, then you've slipped into elder brother. There's another thing about it, though, that's this entitlement mentality that slips into us. Where we start asking God, God, I am faithful. Why haven't you blessed me? 
And you would never say this out loud, right? But you say, you're blessing her, but not me. I mean, you, you wouldn't voice it that crass, right? Because that sounds, sounds pathetic. But you sense it at some level. God, I should have more than this. I mean, seriously, I've been praying for a long time. Why haven't I got whatever it is you're asking him for? And you think at some level that I deserve this because I've been good and faithful and true. And we start to feel just a little self-righteous. You know, that sin of self-righteousness is, man, it just stinks to people. People sense it. You know, there's a reason that the church today isn't known for its grace like Jesus was. And I'm not talking about Crown Point necessarily. I'm just saying the church in general. I mean, the sinners were drawn to Christ. They knew he was holy and they felt bad for their sin, but they were still drawn to him. But they weren't drawn to the Pharisees because the Pharisees in this story are the elder brother. And sometimes that becomes us and they're not drawn to us. We sometimes get ungrateful. And we're not as thankful as we should be for what God has done because we're unhappy with what he hasn't done or what we perceive that he hasn't done. Nick, could I get you to come up? Thankfully, love triumphs over fairness. Not only in this story, but in our story. Because what would have been fair in this story was, like I said, for the story to end part way, right? Because he deserved what he was getting. And we deserve what we should get, but we don't get it because love triumphs over fairness. Man, I've gotten to, I've become really prickly and annoyed at that word fair because there's so many definitions of it. It's so many applications and it becomes such a word that we're comfortable using for other people. Like it's fair for me to judge your actions, but as long as you judge my motives and it's. Sometimes we define fairness as equal for everybody when God loves us equally, but that doesn't mean we all have the same. I mean, he's got different things for us. And I want what she has or he has or this gift or that. Or, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I love you. I want you. So my questions to you tonight are simple, really. I would like you to do this. If you wouldn't mind standing And just shut your eyes for a second. My questions are this. With your eyes closed for just a second. Who are you today? Not who you were, you know, 5, 10, 15, whatever years ago. When you were legitimately the younger brother. Maybe you are the younger brother today. Maybe you're the younger brother today. Maybe you are that younger brother and you're sitting here or standing here tonight and saying, I need his grace tonight. Because at one level or another, I have ended up in a pig pen of my own making. And God, I realize and I'm humiliated and I'm sorry. And I repent. God, I am sorry. I've sinned against you. And there may be somebody that you need to include in that request for forgiveness. If that's you, I'm just telling you that tonight God is running toward you and he wants to fall on your neck and kiss you and restore you to the place of fullness, full relationship with him. But maybe you, like me sometimes, we've slipped into the elder brother role 
become just a little bit judgmental, just a little bit ungrateful, a little self-righteous, a little bit more about rules than grace. And if that's you, I'm sure the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. And what God would say to you tonight is just like the younger brother, he's coming out of the house and seeking you and saying that he loves you too. So it's simple, really. Tonight, we're really one or the other. And I just want you to make it right with him. There's a God who loves us, desperately wants that relationship with us, and he's inviting you to that tonight. So I want to do this. I'm going to pray with you. And then Pastor Nick is going to lead us in worship. And I'm going to encourage you. You could spend however much time you need to spend in prayer with him and make it right. Tell him whatever you need to tell him. I, I know that even as we're talking about this, as some of you, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and just making it very clear that you need to be telling God that you're sorry for this or that. And those are the things you need to clean up and clear up. And he wants you to do that. Let me pray with us for a minute. God, we come before you as sometimes the younger brother, sometimes the elder, but we come before you as people who need you.